So as the kids are going out, I'm going to make a confession this morning before I start. I'm in trouble this morning. A bit off more than I could chew. So this may be a little bit more of an odd sermon than you might be accustomed to. Um, it's odder than what I'm accustomed to. But in my thinking, as we are going through God's plan, as he created this universe, wanted to narrow it down to re- really what the church's place is in it. And so I wanted to go through, too, how God moved or how God worked in different, sometimes we think of them as dot time periods. Um, Biblical terminology would be dispensations or arrangements or administrations that God made according to revelation that he gave to different people at different periods of time. And that revelation is what they were responsible for. And that revelation really dictated and defined what their life was like before God and what they were going to hold their faith in and what God was going to hold them accountable for. So what that entails is really just summarizing the entire history of the course of human life up to present, which I tried to cram down as narrow as I could. And again, this is where the roughness is going to be. So if I leave holes or I leave you confused in some place, um, you are more than welcome to call and we can try and work through it and straighten it out. I, I will just mention that up front. When we think of God's plan and we look through God's plan according to the revelation that he gives at different times, we're going to call that a dispensation. It's a biblical term. Ephesians 1.10 talks about, and depending on your translation, the dispensation of the fullness of time. It might, in some other translations, say the administration. Some would look at it as an economy It's a way of life that was dictated by the revelation that God gave. And that's all those people of that time knew. Christ's teaching helps give us an example of this. Um, When you look at his teachings on stewardship in Luke chapter 12, and there's the good steward and the faithful steward. He's, He's given a task to do. Information is given to him. He's held accountable in that regard. And Paul is, is, as he's describing and as others are describing these dispensations, would, would be more like you might could associate it with a stewardship. I've been given a responsibility that I'm going to be accountable for. And these different stewardships or these dif- different dispensations changed with new revelation that came from God. Because God didn't give all of his entire revelation in a single giving. It came at different times and at different points. Charles Ryrie would describe this as a distinguishing economy. In other words, you can actually distinguish it by the truth that has been revealed to those people at that particular time. In the working out of God's purpose, in other words, God's plan for the entire world and for the end being culminated in Christ, having everything in subjection to him, came in stages, if you would. So here's some things that are common to each of these dispensations. 
There's always two parties, and God is always one of them. And the other are the people of that time. They're always going to be distinguished by new revelation that God gives to them people. Some of the revelation from before is going to continue on, and some of the principles and some of what God has instructed will continue through all of the history of mankind. And some will go away because they no longer serve the purpose that God has for them in his plan. We also know that everybody who is involved in the giving of that revelation for whatever time they're living in, God holds them completely responsible for it. Whether they really take the time to immerse themselves in it and really take the time to get to know and understand what God is asking, he still holds them accountable to it. And there is always some means in all of these, some, some way that God is ruling his creation at that time. Sometimes he's ruling. Sometimes he's using other people. Sometimes he's using other things or other institutions. But there will always be that characteristic too. So I want to look back in Genesis where we start. Many would call this the dispensation, if you will, or the administration or the stewardship that was found in the Garden of Eden. A lot of these dispensations are, are named according to what's characteristic of it. This one many would call innocence. Because the parties are God and Adam and Eve. That's all that exists on the world at this particular time. And we know that Adam and Eve were holy in their nature. That they were predisposed in their nature to do what was right but who also know they were human and they had every possibility to sin and rebel there was much revelation given during that time that we don't have any record of because God walked with man in the cool of the evening and God talked with them and revealed things to them as they lived in dependency upon him but we do have some that is recorded, and it's recorded for our purposes as a people from another time. And beginning in Genesis 1.28, it says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So they were instructed, so here, here's their responsibility to fill the earth, to populate it, to populate it with others that would bear God's image with them for their fellowship and also for the glory of God. They were to subdue the earth. It's interesting that this has the idea that they were to tread down the earth or to discover and unlock all of its secrets that God had put into the world that he created. We might call it in our day science, true, true science, technology, true culture, if you will. Philippians is going to mention this, whatever things are lovely, pure, good report. These are the things we think on. All of these would be part of subduing the earth for the benefit, for the benefit of mankind. And always for the glory of God, so it would look something like this. We can hop in an airplane on our day and we can fly to another state. And we would look at that from a history, from our point backwards, and say, Adam couldn't do that. Other people never experienced that. 
We, we have a technology at our time that is incredible. And here's its purpose. It was for the benefit of mankind. But always for the glory of God and what should take place, the more that we discover things, the more that we continue to grow in technology and benefits in that way, what is supposed to happen to mankind is go, not how smart the guy is who invented it. And not how great it was that they were able to make this happen. We're supposed to stand back and go, God, you are incredible. You are absolutely awesome. Look at all that you wired into your creation, and man was supposed to explore that. So those are good things. And he's supposed to have dominion over the animal kingdom, to rule, if you will, over, over the animals. And at this time, they had no fear of them. Verse 29 says this, And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have excuse me, them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. So we know also that man was to be a vegetarian at that time. He ate fruits and nuts and vegetables, berries. What's more, animal kingdom at that time ate fruits and nuts and vegetables. This was God's plan at this time. And it says, And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And this becomes important. Main responsibility was to cultivate this garden unlock the secrets in order to make it grow as it ought. Man didn't just go out and pick the fruit and eat and just enjoy. He also was commanded by God to tend that garden. So work was a good thing, a beneficial thing, fulfilling thing. And keeping the garden has the idea that Adam was to guard the garden in that regard too. And he gave one prohibition But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. So not allowed to eat the fruit in the tree of the garden, but everything else is open to mankind. Everything is theirs. That was good timing, because that's exactly where we are right now. So... I'm, I'm laughing because it happened to me at Community Baptist Church when I came to visit, and I couldn't shut the thing off. <laughs> and my wife is going, what are you doing? I go, I don't know. I just pressed the button to go to the next chapter, and the voice came on, and I don't know how to shut it off. So she took it and couldn't shut it off, and then my son took it and couldn't shut it off. And I learned that if I just looked forward and said nothing, <laughs> one of them two were going to get blamed. So... <laughs> Oh, where were we? <laughs> so here, here is the truths that continue into all dispensations. We still are supposed to fill the earth. We're still supposed to subdue the earth and unlock all of its treasures. For a point of time, man was still refrained from eating any of the animals. We'll see a change in that in a little bit. The institution of marriage, we know that one man marries one woman and God puts them together and it's for life. 
And in the end of that too, you understand the beginning of a family and th those things are going to continue through all of human history. And Adam is the one who God is ruling the garden through, although he still walks there with them. And they live in dependence on him, and that's never supposed to change either. But we find in verse 6 of chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and notice he's with her. In other words, Adam's with Eve during this temptation. He's not off somewhere else. He's alongside her. And he has responsibility to guard the garden that God had put him in there. And Adam sins along with Eve as he eats that fruit. And we know the consequences that God removes him from the garden and God distances himself from mankind. And he no longer walks with them. Relationship has been broken. And it moves us into the next dispensation, if you will, because we have new revelation that happens that changes the accountability of man towards God. This begins after the fall. And God begins to rule internally with mankind because he's no longer walking with them. We, we would call this our conscience. And Adam and Eve would have a clear conscience in the beginning. Our conscience is operated on our highest level of right and wrong. And what we put into our minds affects the conscience considerably. We, we know this is still part of mankind today. We read things like this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's our nature. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So God's saying, everybody knows who I am. <laughs> Nobody can literally call themselves an atheist. And honestly, in the depth of their heart, believe that. Because God's made himself plain for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that everyone is without excuse in that regard. And so even in, up into our day, people continue to squash down what they innately known or a God-given understanding of right and wrong. Squash that down. We find this all coming together, or at least an example of it, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? You, you remember that they both brought a sacrifice and God rejected Cain's. Abel brings the lamb that was slain. Cain brings the fruit of his ground and God rejects Cain's sacrifice. And he says, if you do well, if you do the right thing, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, or its desire is to come over top. Its desire is to master you. But you must rule over it. And so Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain does what? He raises up and he kills his brother. He ignores 
the prompting of God. That's how God is working through man. Clarified a little bit more in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. The Lord says, my spirit will not abide. Other translations might say, my spirit will not strive, or my spirit will not rule in man forever. For he's flesh, and his days are yet 120 years. And so we understand that the Spirit of God was not going to continue to work in the conscience of man and prompt man as he was right after the fall for 120 more years because we know at this time Noah is now preaching. And we know there's going to be judgment on the world and God's explaining that at that point. It's a prophecy. So Adam and Eve... God and their children, excuse me, and, and Adam and Eve and their children and their children after are all part of what's going on right now. God is claiming that he's not going to work and move in man like that for only 120 more years. He makes statements like this too that is, that is new revelation to them. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and of her offspring, and she shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And again, we have what we would call the kernel of the gospel. There's not going to be a struggle between humankind and a struggle between the serpent. And he's talking about a seed is going to come from the woman that is going to do what? It's going to crush the head of the serpent. So they have this prophecy. They do not understand it in its fullness. John chapter 1, 1 John, excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 8 sheds light in our time on it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, and we, we can understand very clearly from our time that Jesus Christ is the seed that he's talking about. It's the one that's going to come, that is going to conquer, if you would, Satan. And we also understand, and there, there's discrepancy about that. There may be argumentation about this, but it really looks like that Abel was doing what he did because he was instructed by God with the sacrifice of the lamb. And that the lamb was something, or the, or the shedding of blood was something that was going to be part of God's plan from here on out in relation to the forgiveness of sins. Adam and Eve see the two animals that have been killed by God. They're already clothed. It's not just to protect their nakedness. Again, there, there's a lot of other understanding, maybe even as we look back from a verse like Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. He says, you've come, and he's talking about <coughs> us, You've come to a mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, talking about Jesus Christ, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And again, many would connect the understanding that even back at this time, shedding the blood, it was going to be desired by God for the sin of mankind. So here's their responsibility. Just believe God's promise of the one that would come that would crush the head of Satan, even though they may not understand it in its fullness. Offer a blood sacrifice for their sin, and we see this continuing on to other dispensations. 
and to respond in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their conscience. And yet we know the end of this is the flood. And the flood destroys all mankind, except for Noah and his family. And then after that, when they come off the boat, God gives new revelation, additional revelation to them, which changes the arrangement that God has with mankind. So again, after that, we still have... Excuse me, we have two parties, God, and we have Noah and his family. Part of the new revelation that God gives to them is is similar to how we, or excuse me, is, is characteristic of what we call this dispensation. Sorry, I just lost my place. Man is still holding to Genesis chapter 15, 3. Someone's going to come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the servant. We also have this revelation in 9, 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and of all the fish in the sea and into your hand they're delivered, but they're going to be afraid of you now. You're not going to just walk to, up to them anymore. It goes on in, in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That's its blood. So now Adam and Eve, or excuse me, and the others, Noah... Adam and Eve are gone. Noah and his family are given permission by God to eat meat that was prohibited. And the animals are going to be afraid of humankind. And he asks them to establish, if you will, what we would call the beginnings of a human government. Because you remember Cain killed his brother, yet God put a mark on his head so that everybody would recognize supernaturally that God had done that. Because what is Cain afraid of? People are going to kill him. And God establishes what we call the beginnings of a human co- a covenant. Verse nine, government. Genesis 9.5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will qu- require it. From man, from his fellow man, I will re- require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I need something for my brain, too. (laughs) So for the first time now, man's been given the privilege, if you would, to exercise judgment on another human being who has committed murder, and can now, by, by the constitution of this human government, take away the life of the man that killed. These things are still in place for us today. They were responsible to believe the covenant that God made with Noah during this time after the flood. No, no more rain, no more water destroying the world. Establish a civil government that would rule on God's behalf. 
In doing so, they're protecting human life. You've got to ask yourself, is our government involved in those things today? And the government was supposed to be used by God to cause righteousness to flourish. Romans 13.1 would give insight into this as we look back from our time period. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear? Would you want to not fear your authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the worship, on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Again, both of these things are happening now. And it's in relation to a human government that Paul is talking about. And we know from other scripture, if that government goes outside of God's law, that we can object. Peter and John said, do what you want, but we've got to obey God over man. But God is at this particular time ruling mankind through the means of human government. And government was supposed to be for his purposes. And then all of a sudden, God does something drastically different. He no longer works with the world as a whole. He singles out of the world one, one man. And through him, he gives a promise. And that one man, Abraham, is going to be what we might say the light bearer to the world. In other words, God is going to work through Abraham to the world. He begins by doing this with Abraham and what we would call the dispensation of, of promise. Genesis chapter 12 is where this promise or this covenant is made with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. In other words, leave your family, leave your homeland, I'm going to send you to a place you're not sure of or don't know where it is. And he's going to give him a land. So the land becomes very prominent in this, in this promise. It's a specific land. We know if you went to the end of chapter 15 in Genesis, actual rivers are named and that land is marked out. We, we would call that land Canaan. The Bible called that land Canaan. He makes this statement again in Genesis chapter 2. He adds more revelation. And I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you. And I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So not only is God promising him land. He's promising him that he'll be a great nation. And, and that his descendants will be blessed. And they will also from his descendants come one out of his seed that would bless the entire world. Abraham doesn't understand the extent of this covenant the way you and I understand it now. 
because of the revelation that we've been given since then. But he's responsible to trust God, would fulfill his promises. Does Abraham ever get the land? Not in his time. Does Isaac get the land? Not in his time. Does Jacob get the land? Not in his time. In fact, Hebrew tells us this about the faith of these men holding on to the revelation that God gave to them. When it doesn't get fulfilled in their time period, Hebrews says this, by faith he went to live in a land of promise, meaning Abraham. As in a foreign land, he went to the land that God promised him and he lived there like a foreigner because he never was able to possess it at that time. And he lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking, and here's motivation, he was looking for a city that has foundations whose designer and whose builder is God. So, so why is not only Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob, what's part of the reason why they're in this history of faith that's recorded in, in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews? Because they were promised a land, and they went to the land, and they lived in there like visitors, like strangers. And God never gave that land to them, but they were sure in their whole heart. And they were obedient in faith to what God had given to them, and their faith was incredible. We also know that they were to remain a particular people. Genesis 24, 4, Abraham sends out his servant to go to his homeland, to people of his nationality, to find a wife. And we know that Esau fails in this. So at this particular time, God is separating Abraham as a people unto himself. He also asks that they would take a sign of the covenant. Genesis chapter 17, this is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And this was particular for Abraham. And particular for all the Israelites that would come after him as a physical representation of a sign that they were God's people. And we know this particular thing causes all sorts of difficulty in the New Testament as some of the New Testament people want to bring this into part of the new, the new revelation that's given by Jesus Christ for our time period. They're not to leave the promised land. 26 of the same, if Genesis chapter 1, it says there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Ger, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. In other words, don't leave the land that I've promised to you. Don't remove yourself from its boundaries. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. So, so we know that some of these principles continue. goes on to say this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We, we're we're going to know that because these continues and this promise is not excuse me this promise is not completely fulfilled 
that there is a place for the nation, the nation Israel, that God still has a plan for them. And when we go into eschatology, we, we see God using the nation Israel to bring about the final fulfillments of everything that he's promised to Abraham. Galatians says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it, doesn't, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we're understanding Christ is the one that's going to come from the lineage of Abraham. And he's the one that's going to bless the whole world, and we know how he's going to bless the whole world because of what he did on the cross. And Paul goes on to say, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So the covenant to Abraham, still in vogue. Still in place with the nation Israel. God still has work that he's going to do through them and to them. We know that Jacob leaves when he has a famine. He leaves the land. And after he leaves the land, the children of Israel go into slavery eventually. And when they come out of that, and God leads them out to Mount Sinai as a people, he's, gonna, he's going to put together what we're going to call the dispensation of law. We're, we're going to end with this one. Israel becomes a nation. Now Abraham's people are so huge that Pharaoh decides to put them into slavery to keep them into control because they might end up wanting to take over Egypt, if you would. And we know how God works mightily on their behalf. And they come out and they go to Mount Sinai and at Mount Sinai, God gives this statement. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And he's talking to Moses, saying, this is what you need to tell the people of Israel. He was making a covenant with them that day. And there's new revelation that comes that changes the way God is accountable. Gentiles, they're still back in human government. Abraham, his people, are now being formed into a nation, and now God is going to use the people of Israel to shed light to the world. He's going to work through an independent nation in, under, in, in a way to show himself strong and show who he is and help us understand things about God. So what was some of the new revelation that was given? Well, the whole law of Moses. All 630-some do and don't statements. It was a law that could not be divided. It came in three parts. A moral code, we call the Ten Commandments. A civil code that had things like put railings on your rooftops. Why? Protecting human life. 
so that you don't fall off the top. They lived on the rooftops. They did things on the rooftops. It also had a ceremonial code. So here's how I want you to sacrifice now. And I want you to follow this specifically so that I can accept your offering of blood for your sins. And they had to keep the entire law, all of it. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So imagine putting yourself under the law of Moses and being instructed by God, you must keep this whole law in all of its detail. Yet, yet there's this ray of hope that if anyone could keep the whole law perfectly, theoretically, they could earn eternal life. They could earn merit with God, theoretically. That's not the purpose of the law, we know. But we have verses like this in Leviticus 18.3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. They are separated people for God. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rule, and if a person does them, he will live by them. As Ezekiel 20 says the same thing, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, in which if a person does them, he shall live by them. But the reality was that the law was never meant to justify anyone because nobody could keep it. And nobody today could keep the law. There was only one man that kept the law perfectly. That was Jesus Christ. The one who was promised would come out of the seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to the entire world. Galatians 2.21 says, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if you really could become righteous by keeping a law, all sorts of religions have their laws. And they are hoping that if they keep them, they they will come to eternal life. They'll come to God or whatever their view of God is in some way. And Paul is saying, if that were the case, and if the law of Moses could actually do that, then there would have been no reason for Jesus Christ to die. So Israel is supposed to represent God to the world around them by keeping their law. And the whole world will know about God. If they keep their law, what happens to Israel? Blessed beyond belief. If they break the law, what happens to Israel? Cursed. And all the nations are learning about Jehovah, the God of Israel, by their obedience or their disobedience. And we know the failure. They had the law. They should have known who Christ was. But when he came, they crucified him on a cross. They murdered their Messiah. But the sin of Israel murdering the Messiah is also the very same thing that God in his plan used to do what? To bring salvation to all of mankind. 
because it takes the shedding of blood for the remission of sin, and he showed it in an example through the lamb and the other animals all through history. And now the perfect lamb has come. The perfect sacrifice that doesn't just cover sins, but is able to pay for sins so that God can accept an individual as righteous before him. That's the benefit of it. After the law is what we want to look at next week. Hebrews 20 says this, that there's a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, talking about Jesus Christ. There's this new way, there's this living way. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the law had glory, but this new way of living that comes through Christ far, far exceeds anything that anyone could enjoy from the law. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says this, Now if the ministry of death, talking about the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end or was beginning to diminish the moment it was enacted. It had a term to it. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have any even more glory? In other words, will not the time or the dispensation that you and I are living in right now have so much more glory than the law that it makes the law look like it had no glory at all. And the question is, as we sit here every day, do we look at the revelation that God has given to us in the New Testament and the full gospel of Jesus Christ being laid out in front of us? Do we look at it as glorious? So, so incredibly glorious that it makes the law look like it had no glory at all. People of other times didn't fully understand the revelations that God gave them. They knew what they were supposed to do, and in faith, they either rejected or accepted. We have the most full revelation of any people in this entire world at any time. We have the whole Bible sitting in front of us. And all the prophecy of what is to come. And the question is, do we look at it and say, this is incredibly glorious. So much so that it motivates life. Paul says this in Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of church truth. And so we're understanding that God in this dispensation is forming together the body in Christ in what we call the church. And it is going to be the light to the world, much like Israel was and Abraham was. And he's saying it is going to be incredibly glorious. So much more so than any other thing anyone has ever seen in the history of time. 
And then he makes a statement to the Corinthians because they're not displaying it. Chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And he's talking in plural, not, not the individual at this point. There are temples all over Corinth representing all the different gods that people have come to accept over the God Jehovah. And there's no temple for Jehovah. It's gone. It's, it's destroyed. Well, maybe not quite at that time, depending on when Corinthians was written. But it's coming. But there is no temple representing the gospel of Jesus Christ or a New Testament saint. And he's saying, don't you know that you, you as a collective people that have been gathered together in my name, are my temple, and I dwell in you, and I'm going to make the world understand, or I'm going to give the world an infomercial of what it would be like underneath the reign of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to display it through you. And here's his warning. If anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, you are that temple. And the question I ask as we close today, because I'm probably way past, and you've been incredibly patient, and you may lash with me with however many lashes you need, and you can say whatever you need to say as I burnt your, um, your beef today, if it's in the oven. I apologize. And I, I will try to be better next week. And I will be better next week. Do we know who we are? And do we know what God is intending to do with the church? And can we see the glory of it that's being displayed? And can the world see that glory? If not, we look back in the history of dispensations that gone before us. And may we take the admonition of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who, who with their whole hearts lived out what they knew according to what God had given to them. And God puts them in the hall of faith, if you would. May, may, may we be those people today in relation to this thing called a church. Because it's front and center now in God's dispensation. It, it is literally the sphere in which our ministry operates. Lord God, we are incredibly thankful for your goodness and your graciousness in Jesus Christ. Lord, we are asking that you may help us to understand who we are in you fully understand who we are in you. We're asking that you'd help us fully understand your church and its place in this dispensation of time. That we might understand very clearly what you are requiring of us. And Lord God, I pray with just full and open hearts, may we accept it and embrace it we're praying, dear God, that your Son might be visible, visibly displayed by everything that goes on, not only in this house we're in today called a church, but as we go out into the community, 
and even just as important, maybe more, as we go into our homes, that the reality of the glory of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross would be vividly displayed in all of our relationships so that you might get all the praise and all the glory.